We're continuing our series, our Christmas series of waiting. And last week we looked at waiting for good news and we saw that finally this good news was delivered to the shepherds and they were able to see the, 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 the child that had been born of, of Mary and to be able to go there and to be able to, to glorify that, to be in awe and to be in wonder. And today we're continuing in this Christmas story, a, perhaps a passage I, I would imagine that many of you have read through, but it's often one that we don't think of oftentimes when we do the Christmas story. In fact, if you look at your nativity set, as I imagine many of you probably have a nativity set set up in your home, uh, those are one of my favorite things to play with as a child. I don't know if this was true for you. And I can remember going, uh, uh, growing up in my home, we had probably two, maybe three different nativity scenes or sets that were set up around the house. One was the classic, this is mom's set. It's very nice and clean and porcelain and do not touch three young boys because this is designed for grown-ups to look at when they come into the door. I don't know why, but sometimes I think just people in general, I'm not going to be, you know, women, they want to have something really pretty at the front of the door so you see it when you first come in. And here's this set that you didn't touch, you didn't, you didn't play with. And then there was uh, another set that we had that was kind of this classic set. It almost had this mossy feel and look to it and had these plastic figurines, these plastic sheep, and we would make those sheep dance all over that manger and do all these different things. And, you know, they're jumping down and like looking at baby Jesus. And it was just a lot of fun to be able to play with some of those sets and scenes. I was going to bring you the set that we have at our house, but uh, someone said, I don't want you bringing that because there's a possibility uh, that uh, they tumble and fall. And But for me, I've always enjoyed and the nativity scene or the nativity sets that we have. And I know for some of you, because you are Bible students, you know that the wise men probably, not probably, they weren't at the scene of the birth of Christ. And so some of you, you know, you're, you're, you're very true to the biblical text. You might have the nativity scene set up. And then over here is the wise men with their camels because they're not at the scene. And so good for you. Uh, and then what we have is you, you need a couple of other figures for your set. So when you go home today, you might get some Play-Doh or something. And you might start making these characters because there's a character that we're going to look at today and next week as we continue in Luke chapter 2. And we're going to see these characters that, that are really interesting and vital to the birth story of Christ. I mean, if we're waiting two years later for the wise men to show up, I don't know why Simeon and Anna get neglected so often. They're not even in our nativity scenes or our cards. So before you send out, if you've already sent out your Christmas card and maybe it's got a nativity set on it, just draw a couple of stick figures and put, I'm Simeon and I'm Anna. And then you will be even truer to the text of scripture out of Luke chapter 2. But as we look at this, this Christmas pageant that unfolds, uh, we're going to look at this one today, and then as kind of coincides with our theme, we're going to wait to look at the other figure next week. But before we do, um, I did want us to pray this morning before we jumped into the Word. And specifically, I'm going to give you just a, uh, a little bit of time. If you're joining us online, just take a little bit of time where you're at as well. But, but I would like to invite you, before we dive into the text and what the Lord has for us, that we would take a few moments and not only prepare your heart to hear what the Lord has you to say, but if you would, to be in prayer for, for those who, over the course of this weekend, some of them, their lives have forever changed. And I, I think it's fitting for us not to just do something because, well, that's what we should do, but we do something because it, it, it's, it, it should be done. We need to be praying for those and interceding on those who, this morning, their, their lives are just upside down and we're, we're in a space. I know we're ready to be in, a, in a, probably a more permanent space, but we have a space. And we have heat. We have air. We have a seat, and some people don't have that right now. So let's just take a moment and let's pray. 
I'll give you a few moments there on your own, and then, uh, and then I'll voice our prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into what the Lord has to say. As before, I'm just going to voice a, a prayer, but you continue to pray where you're at. Father, I thank you that we could come into a setting, into a, a place like this to where we could gather together and we are able to, to celebrate and to worship you and to be able to, to hear from you. And, and so, Father, I pray that we would take advantage of the time that we have, that we're not just going through the motions, that we're not just... Um, simply being religious, but Father, that we are invested in the relationship that we have with you through your Son, and that this would be a time to, to, to kind of settle in and just to uh, enjoy, be moved, be in awe of your glory, of the birth of our Savior. And Father, I do pray specifically for those, not just in Mayfield, Father, but for other parts of our country who are going through some some very real hardship right now, the loss of a home, um, for some the loss of, of a loved one. And Father, I pray that um, we not only pray, but that we are aware and have our eyes open as we would as we would do as Christ did, that we would we would see the people and have compassion, Lord. Um, and so Father, I pray for those uh, like Adalton and some others who are even there right now of wanting to, to minister and, and to serve and, and to help, Lord. Uh, I pray that uh, physical needs can certainly be met. Um, and Father, that as a result, that even through something as, as, as hard as this, that this could be an opportunity in which um, people come to know your, your grace and your mercy in the person of, of Jesus. And I pray this in His name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I do want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Uh, Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be continuing. And as we're studying through this, to set the scene a little bit of the birth of Jesus, you have to be reminded that the conditions were, were very bad. They're, they're pretty bleak in the nation of Israel at this time when Christ is born in, in Bethlehem. I mean, you can think about what they are experiencing, the loss of political independence, uh, 
think of the fact that sometimes we, we get frustrated when perhaps whatever side of the aisle that you are on and your party doesn't do what you think your party should do in the results of an election and you feel despair and loss for maybe four years or six years. This is a group of people who have been under the thumb of an empire that cares nothing for them but appreciates taking their money from them for taxation purposes. That's what they're experiencing. No sense of freedom but being ruled over, and they're under that. And not only under that, but they're under the cruelty of the king at that time in the nation of Israel by the name of Herod. Herod's a cruel guy. He, he, some people look back on him, and it's like, man, he was quite the architect, quite the builder, but he was cruel, and he was a bit crazy. Uh, you know that in the story of Matthew, he, he knows that there's going to be the Messiah that's born two years after Christ is born. The, the wise men show up on the scene to worship the one who was going to be born, and they have the prophets, and they have all these different people, and King Herod's like, I want all the babies, male, two years and younger, to be, to be killed. This is the kind of rule and reign that they're under. Not only that... The, what they would rely upon was the voice of the prophets. And they've had silence for over 400 years of not hearing from a prophet of God speak to them as, as that voice of God, truth into their life. And in the midst of this all, there's darkness, there's despair, but yet in the midst of it, there's that remnant of, of, of people who, who have a hope of something that they're looking forward to, even expecting and it was known as the consolation of Israel. And that's what we're looking at today. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They would pull from that familiar passage out of Isaiah chapter 40 of comfort, O oh comfort my people. Consolation is just another fun way of saying comfort. That, that they were waiting for comfort to come their way. They were waiting for hope to come their way. They were waiting that, that there would be one who would be able to accomplish what no one else could. And many of them thought of it from a political standpoint or a military standpoint, but they had no idea that what they were really needing and longing for and looking towards and waiting upon was that there would be a Savior who would be born even for something greater than their political freedom. It was their spiritual freedom. It was their spiritual salvation. And so this is the scene that we're in and, and we come to, to hear a little bit about one of these men who is that remnant who still has that glimmer of hope that the consolation of Israel, the comfort, is, is about to come. Look, look at verse 21. It says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, this is Jesus, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you're like me, I, I've read Luke chapter 2 and I've kind of read the story of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds, I kind of skim over verses 21 through 38, and really verse through verse 40, and then I, 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 just, I just kind of glance over this part, especially verses 21 to 24, because I've asked the question, why is that included in Scripture? Have you ever wondered when you're reading Scripture, why did you include that? And we're going to take a look at that today. We're going to take a little closer look. Look at verse 21. There's two things that come out of verse 21. It talks about the circumcision of Jesus and the naming of Jesus. 
And when it comes to circumcision, I know it can be an uncomfortable topic and something that we don't necessarily want to focus in on, but this was something that on the eighth day after a male child was born, he would go through this. He, he would go through circumcision. It was the custom of the law, but it was even something that predated the law of Moses. This was something that was Abraham, and Abraham was well before Moses. When Abraham was being called out by God to, to be his people that he was going to bless and then bless those all that were around him, this was a sign of an everlasting covenant of the, of the symbolism and of the gesture of the cutting away of the flesh. It was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and God and the, the people of God, the, the nation of Israel, as we get into the Mosaic law. But what's interesting is is why are, why, are they, why is Luke sharing this information? And we're about to see that. But then the other thing that's interesting is, is we might say, well, why the eighth day? Why, why did it have to be eight? And the, the simplest answer is this, because God said so. <laughs> that's the reason why they did it on the eighth day. But interestingly enough now, medically speaking, in different journals that you can read, is that there's something interesting that goes on within a baby who is born and out of the womb, that on day seven, their blood, and I've been working on this word, does not uh, coagulate uh, as well as it does on the eighth day. And then that coagulate process, however all that blood clotting works, kind of goes back to what it was on day seven, uh, or uh, what it was on day seven on day nine. So you have like this perfect day that seemed to just kind of be designed by, I don't know, a creator in which that this would be a time in which the blood would, would clot or coagulate in the way that it needed to uh, in this kind of process. I just find that kind of interesting in the way that God designs and the way that God works things. But, but the other is this. Throughout all of this, what you're going to see is that when Jesus is born, Though he is God incarnate, he is God in the flesh, he chose willingly to, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, to humble himself and take on the form of a man. And that means even the form of baby. Now, we all know a baby is not going to be able to enact out the standard of the law of God as a baby. Baby can't even lift his head. It's going to require that there are going to be those, as we know from Mary and Joseph, who are righteous and devout followers that are going to continue to fulfill and live out the law. And there's a reason behind that. And we're going to get to that in just a second. The next thing that we find in verse 21 is the naming of Jesus. Now, again, we might say, well, we already know this. Uh, Joseph was told what to name Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. We know that Mary was told what to name Jesus. Uh, we, we, we know that this is the name that he's going to have. But I want you to see the obedience of Mary and Joseph through all of the stuff that they've been going through, the scandal that they have more than likely experienced because of, of, of her pregnancy before their marriage. That There was just so much going on in the course of this story, and yet they remain steadfast and true to what it is that God has commanded them to do. And one of those things is naming was a big deal. They might have wanted to name them something different, maybe some kind of name that had to do with, like, we persevered through hardship. But instead, they choose the name that is the fitting name of Jesus. It's the name Yeshua. It's the name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. This is what Jesus is going to fulfill over the course of his life, as we very well know. And then you get into verses 22 through 24. And at this moment, we, we see a couple of things take place. 
Um, in verse 21, that's about eight days after the birth of Jesus for the purpose of circumcision. But in verses 22 through 24, at some point, they make a journey, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, they make a journey to Jerusalem, to the temple. And there, they're doing two different things. They are, uh, they are having uh, this time of purification and presentation. Now, the point of, of purification was for the mom. This is for Mary. For Mary to continue to have that access, if you will, to worship the Lord and to be able to have this time to, 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 to not be, quote-unquote, unclean, there were certain things within the Mosaic law that you had to go through as, as a woman who gave birth. And it was, you actually, if you had a boy, you had to wait 40 days during this time of purification. If you had a girl, you had to wait 80 days. I don't have time to get into all the nuance of it, but go to Leviticus 12 and you can read it for yourself. But what you have is in this time is, is the mom is needing to go through this process. God has put something in place to where the relationship between God and his people, between God specifically and these women who gave birth, would be able to remain intact. And so sacrifices would be presented um, and at this time, you didn't have to take your baby boy. You didn't have to take your child to Jerusalem. But in some ways, this story almost reminds me a little bit of Hannah, if you know that story from 1 Samuel, of Mary and Joseph are wanting to present Jesus because they know who he is, because they have experienced the intercession of the messengers, of the angels of the Lord, of knowing that this, this child is, 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 is God's, and they're presenting him and saying, this, this, is, this is your child. Now, in the presentation of what's happening, happening, you'll find in Leviticus 12, Leviticus 5, Exodus 13, that in the sacrificial system at this point in time, you are going to sacrifice a couple of different things. And there might be a hodgepodge of information up here. I'll try to explain it as best as I can, but I, I find it interesting. So there were, there were a couple of things you could do to have a sacrifice presented for you as a, as a woman for this time of purification is... You could either have a you could have a one year old lamb, and a one uh, one young pigeon or one young turtle dove. What this is is the lamb would be for a sin offering, and the turtle dove or the pigeon would be for a uh, a burnt offering. I may have mixed those up, so I'll, I'll come back. Um, the other was if you didn't have the means, a lamb much more expensive than a pigeon or a turtle dove, and so God understanding this, said, if you have the means, a lamb is the number one choice that I would have you to bring to the temple to be presented as a sacrifice for your purification. But if you don't have the means to do that, I'm not excluding that this thing of relationship with me is just for a certain class of people. It's for everybody. And so what he does is he said, perhaps you don't have the means for that, so you could give two turtle doves or two pigeons. And again, one is for the burnt offering. And if you read through the book of Leviticus, I've been in Leviticus a lot this week, a lot more than I normally traverse and travel through Leviticus. If you have a burnt offering, a burnt offering was just this. It's complete dedication to God. That was the significance or the point of offering a burnt offering. The other was for a sin offering. A sin offering was for the unknown or unintentional sin that you're committing. It's like, God, you may have done this before. If like, Lord, I... You're confessing your sins to him. And then you're like, and Lord, there may be some things that I'm not even aware of that I did today. We forgive those as well. And that's what's taking place here. And so what you have is a couple of things that are just beautiful in this moment that we could just skim over and go, okay, that's Old Testament stuff. I don't really understand it. So I'm going to kind of skip past it. But what we see 
<laughs> is one, we see, we see the fact that Mary, in order for her to be able to continue to have access, to continue to worship, to be able to go to the temple, even though it's in the outer court with the women, um, to be able to do all these different things, she's got to go through this process. And yet she's presenting the Lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world to God. She's having to go through all of this all of the law and the sacrifice and the purification and all this stuff that you have to do on top of just giving birth, you had to go through all of this stuff in order for things to be made right. And in about 33 years, her baby boy is going to make it possible to where everything can be made right. It'll break her heart, but it will save her soul. Sometimes we look at things and we go, why is that in there? Well, one, I think the gospel writer of Luke is wanting to remind us there was a whole lot of stuff that had to be done for you to just come near to God. And now God came near to you in the form of baby Jesus, and he lived a perfect life. And even when he didn't have the ability to make all of the choices and decisions, he had two loving parents who said, so that there are no holes in your resume to be perfect and beyond, not beyond reproach, but just perfect. We're going to make sure that you're circumcised on the eighth day, just like it is according to the law. So that when you're on that cross, no one could poke a hole in your story or your resume or your credentials and say, ah, ah, ah. We never read anywhere in Scripture that he was circumcised. Could, I mean, could you imagine today? I'm sure there are people today who have studied Scripture and are like, how can we poke some holes in Christianity? But you know what I didn't read in Scripture? There's no account of Jesus being circumcised. And if he wasn't circumcised, he didn't obey the law. If he didn't obey the law, then he cannot be the Messiah. I love how God is presenting to us and showing us he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. This isn't haphazard. And when I started studying this week, I was literally kind of like, this is amazing. Like, this is awesome that our God is this attention to detail for you born 2,000 years later of like, I got this taken care of through the birth of my son. And it's going to be heartbreaking and painful, but it's going to be for your good. And it's such, such good news. Listen to this scripture out of Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, I think it'll be on the screen. But listen to this. Uh, it says, For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That one man we know is Adam. His disobedience made us sinners, made you a sinner. And you're like, don't call me a sinner. Sorry, you're a sinner. He made you a sinner. We're born with a sin nature. But even so, notice this, through the obedience the obedience, the righteous life, the obedience of the one Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So even that stuff that's going on in Jesus' life when he's eight days old and when he's being presented to the temple or being presented to God in the temple as a 40-day-old baby and when he's living over the course of when he's a young child and a 12-year-old in his teen years, when we just can't imagine, he's continuing to remain righteous and steadfast because he has to live the life that we can't live so that he can die the death that you and I deserve in our place. Some of you know the doctrine of substitution, the, the, the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus upon the cross. Maybe the easiest way to kind of break it down is you all had a substitute teacher when you were growing up, I imagine, and you were like, yay, we get to give this person just the hardest time because they're the substitute. And, and, Every now and then, I would get like the coolest substitute teacher to where I was like, 
can you remain in place of my teacher because you're teaching me things I never even knew? Taking the place. Jesus is taking the place. But here's, here's the deal. He takes your place. Some people call it the great exchange. Jesus exchanged his resume for your resume. Jesus exchanged his perfection for your imperfection. He exchanged his holiness for your sin in order that you could be holy, you could be righteous, you could be set apart. This was what he came to accomplish, to live the perfect life in every aspect it had to be. He had to live it according to the law in obedience so that we might be made righteous. And this is good news. This is consolation. This is comfort. Again, for centuries, they had been living under the old covenant, Mosaic law, the sacrificial system. Think, think of Mary having to go through that process. I just gave birth. It's 40 days later. I haven't been able to do anything uh, worship-wise. I'm just kind of having to wait. And now i got to go buy a couple of turtle doves, have them killed, in order that I can have this access, if you will. So much of the old covenant has to do with stay back, keep your distance, until blood is shed, until the, the, the process has been accomplished. But we know with Christ, let's fast forward 33 years, we know now that there is comfort under the new covenant of the Lord God saying, blood has been shed once and for all, it says in Hebrews, so you can come on in. The Old Testament was a bit of distance. The new covenant of Jesus is you're welcomed in. The veil is torn in the Holy of Holies. You have access to the Lord because of Jesus and his two parents making sure that he's living out the fulfillment of the law even eight days after he's born and can't even lift his head as a baby. And so sometimes we wonder why that's in there. I think that's why it's in there. We need to be reminded of, of the attention to detail that God has. Now verses 21 through 24 are kind of these broad strokes of what Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus are doing. But in verses 25 through 35 where we're going to finish is is now we're zooming in to what it is that they were doing. We're going to zoom in on this scene there in the temple, and we're going to look at a particular individual that you need to include in your nativity set by the name of Simeon. Look at verse 25. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Here it is, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In this section, we're introduced to Simeon, a man that maybe you've studied, looked at, or maybe not. But Simeon, as it says here, he's, he's looking for the Messiah. And what I love is that he says in verse 25, he's looking for the consolation of Israel. 
He's looking for himself, but I think his heart is big enough that he's, he's also wanting this for his, his, his friends, for his countrymen, for his neighbors, because he knows what kind of condition they're in. He, he, wants, he wants the hope of Israel to show up, the Messiah, the anointed one, because he also knows within the religious system itself what it is that they're experiencing. Some of you know who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were leading the population into legalism. But then we also have the Sadducees. The Sadducees are leading the population into liberalism. They're denying the resurrection, the supernatural. They're denying even angels. And then we come to the Zealots. The Zealots are leading the people into politicism. They're all about, well, we want to have some kind of insurrection or rebellion or revolution, a war against Rome, so that way we can, we can be set free. That's what we really want. And then you have this group known as the Essenes. The Essenines were people that were leading the nation of Israel, some individuals, into what was known as monasticism or asceticism, which essentially is this idea that we're going to kind of separate ourselves from everybody. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to treat ourselves very poorly, have self-denial in our lives, so that way we somehow have earned the salvation of, of God. And through all of that, from the Pharisees down to the Essenes, what you have is you have these different religious kind of groups popping up and saying, this is what we need. This is what we must have. And I believe Simeon recognizes that, no, what we need is what was promised years ago. We need comfort, oh comfort, my people. We need the comforter. We need the consolation of Israel. We need the anointed one. We need the one prophesied, as we saw last week in Genesis 3.15, the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent, the one who's going to set us free. It says that Simeon is a righteous man. He, he, he's a devout man. And as he's looking and he's longing for, for deliverance for the nation of Israel, he finds out in verse 26 that he's not going to die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but that would be fun information to have. If, 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 someone, uh, if God and his messenger came to you and said, you're not going to die until... Could you imagine how many possibilities that would open up? I think at that point, Tiffany finally might let me go skydiving. Um, I've always wanted to swim with sharks and be in a cage like with great whites around. I've wanted to do some of those things that people are like, but you might die. And it's like, <laughs> no, I won't. I mean, I, I could eat whatever I want. I might gain the weight, but I'm not going to die. My arteries might be clogged, but I'm not going to die because I've been promised that I'm not going to die until I've seen the Lord's Christ. What a great promise that Simeon had. But I also wonder, because it seems to be out of the text, it's not explicitly said, but most commentators agree, he's probably a very old man at this point. We don't know when the promise happened. We don't know how old he is. But have you ever waited for something for so long? And as time continues to go by, you're like, did I, did I hear that right? Was that true? Did, did he actually say that? And what we have to be careful as Christians sometimes is we think there are promises that aren't really promises <laughs> for us. Um, but there are promises in Scripture that are for us. And you may be waiting for some things of maybe some relief or the presence. And can I just remind you, He'll never leave you or forsake you. He is your hope and He is your deliverer. He is your redeemer. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. You have hope in Him. Even if, as in Simeon's day, politically, religiously, personally, it's just dark and despair all around you, 
They don't even know it, but the Christ has been born. There's hope, even in the midst of when it's so bleak and so dark. It's, it's worth the wait. It's, it's worth you, as Paul would say, to, again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord. I know that, that it means that there are certain parameters that you have in your life. There are certain things that as a follower of Jesus that you're like, I'm not even going to taste it or be tempted by it because I know what it leads to, even though, no, I'm going to choose, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to go through the narrow gate that is Jesus and walk the narrow path, not out of legalism, but out of devotion and love to what I know is good and righteous. And so we have, we have this promise given to Simeon, and then in verses, uh, verse 27, Simeon seems to be in the temple. It's not happenstance. Did you notice three different times the Holy Spirit is referenced in relation to Simeon and this story? It's not just Simeon going, oh, I'm going to go to the temple today. The Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and directing him to be there in the temple in this moment whenever the purification process and the presentation of Jesus is going on, that's when he just happens to show up. Again, it's not happenstance, it's not coincidence when it comes to God and the, and the, the redemptive story of God. Because God promised Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Christ. And here he is in your hometown in Jerusalem. So he shows up. And could you imagine, those of you have a little baby, 40 days old, and some old man <laughs> comes up to you and goes, can I hold your baby? <laughs> like, Back off, Buster. There's, there's no way. And, but, but here he comes, and it says that when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for Jesus the custom of the law. I, I didn't mention it earlier, but this is now the fourth time that the custom of the law, according to the law, has been brought up. The law must be fulfilled for his resume to be what we need it to be to save our souls. And to me, the, the heart and just the... The, the apex of, of this story. Verses 28 through 32, Simeon finally gets to experience the promise. Have you ever experienced Jesus? I'm not talking about a goosebump. I'm talking about Jesus. It says he took him into his arms and he blessed God. He said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. He praises God. He worships God. Can I tell you this? When you walk into this place and you think of Jesus, you praise God. When you walk out of this place, you praise God. Sometimes we reserve worship to at that place, at that time, and in that setting. Worship is not in a place. Worship is it's an attitude of your life as a follower of Jesus whether you're putting your head on your pillow at night or whether you're waking up first thing in the morning or you're commuting through traffic, every aspect of our life is to be worship and, and praising God. It may not look like in the setting of where I'm going to sit in rows with friends of mine and we're going to sing songs and look at a screen and we're going to let someone come up and share something from the Word of God. That, that's a kind of worship, but, but you have the ability to worship God in any, every way that people in the Old Testament could only fathom. That the God of heaven put his spirit within you when you place your faith upon Jesus. in Jesus. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to keep your distance. When you repent and humble yourself and cry out for his grace and mercy, he comes into your life. The God of heaven comes into your life. He draws near to you. 
as you humbled yourself before him. And so here's Simeon. He, he says in verses uh, 30, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. If you have a copy of Scripture, underline that. His eyes have seen salvation. I mean, think of things that, that have stood out to you over the years. We see, we see so many images every day just, boom, 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 just right in front of us all the time. And hardly any of them really retain with us, unless it was something incredible or something maybe horrible. We, we, we have so many images that we can't recall or remember. But there's some that do. I, I can remember it will be this Friday, December 17th. I'll be married to that young lady for 16 years. And I can still remember standing there in the front of an auditorium, watching, I can still see my brothers and, and my friends walking forward with some of Tiffany's bridesmaids as they're walking forward, and I can just remember seeing them, and I'm, I'm doing that thing where I think I've even shared this before where I'm, I'm kind of antsy and excited. I'm, I'm doing this. And, and then finally, the image, something that I remember seeing vividly 16 years ago, those doors opening, and just seeing my bride-to-be just walking toward me down that aisle. I, I was a nervous, excited mess. And she got there, I calmed right down. I did drop a ring. That's beside the point. But, uh, but it's something that I will always remember of what I saw. Some of you have that image in your head of something beautiful, maybe tragic, but there are things that we see that just resonate with us and stick with us. And here's Here's Simeon, this older man, waiting for this promise. He looks at a baby. Think about what a baby can accomplish at 40 days old. Not much. And he goes, my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice what he saw. And he's a righteous, devout man of God, waiting for the consolation, looking for the consolation of Israel. He knows his scripture. He knows the Old Testament scrolls. When he looks, he doesn't say, man, my eyes have seen a scroll of Scripture. My eyes have seen an altar. Or my eyes have seen a law. He saw a person. Don't forget that. Sometimes we get caught up in the ritual, the routine, the things I'm supposed to do. Many of those things in and of themselves are not bad. You've been saved for good works according to Ephesians 2.10. Yeah, there's some things you're going to do but it's a person who can save your soul. That's it. He sees Jesus. He's found, he finds salvation in Jesus. He says it's your salvation that you have prepared. This is God's doing, God's work, God's Savior. Another way to put it that I heard one guy write down is salvation isn't something you do. It is someone you know. Do you know Jesus? Again, I can remember in August of 1987, hearing my dad preach. But here's the truth of the matter. I saw a church. I saw my dad preach. I saw so many different Bible stories of Jesus. I, 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 I saw offering plates. I saw offering envelopes. I saw, I saw all of these things. But it wasn't until August of 1987 that my eyes saw the salvation of God in the person of Jesus. And I entered into that relationship with him because of what he has made possible, about what he has provided. 
If any of you in this room are like, man, I think I've done something to kind of get closer to Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus got closer to you. He invaded this world in order to redeem you and to save you and to snatch you out of the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. And so you better believe that whenever he says these things, verse 33, it says, and his father and mother were amazed. Could you imagine? Everyone's proud of their little baby. You got a 40-day-old baby, 40 day old baby like, oh, look at my baby. My baby's so cute, even though they got a head shaped like a football. And you're like, oh, it's just adorable. And then someone comes along and is like, I've seen salvation. That would be a pretty huge thing to hear. Even though they know the behind-the-scenes stuff with all the angels, it says, man, we're amazed at this. But Simeon continues there. He shares some kind of good news, but some hard news. In verses 34 and 35, he says, this child is appointed. There's a purpose with this child, the Messiah, the consolation and the comfort. Mary, your heart's going to be really full, but it's going to be really broken by this child. See, Jesus is like a stone we know from Scripture. It's like a rock over which some will trip and fall, as it says here. He's appointed for the fall of many. But Jesus is also like one that we know is the chief cornerstone that we build our life upon in which we rise. He's the consolation. He's the comfort. He's salvation. Rejecting or receiving Jesus, as it says in verse 35, reveals your heart. John chapter 1, it says this, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. It's not enough for you to see a Bible, to show up to a Bible study, to grow up into a Christian home. Have you received him that you might become a child of God. And I say this because all of what this meticulous work of what God is doing, the incarnation, the, the, the perfect life, he, he's not just doing this just because he's doing this so that you have a means of salvation. And this is the truth of the matter is that Christmas, it truly does. It splits people into at least two camps because since Jesus has entered into the world, he's divided the human race and he'll cause the falling and the rising of many because of who Jesus is and what he came to do, he forces all of us to make a decision about him. You can't stay neutral with Jesus. You're either for him or against him. Either you trip over him or you rise because of him. You're either moving closer to him or you're moving further away from him. You either have the son of God or you don't. Sometimes what we want to do is like, I want a little bit of Jesus. I want a little bit of this. I like a, I like a little bit of the church thing. I like, I like how it makes me feel. And, you know, when I go there and I sing some of those songs, it makes me feel a little bit better. And it's like, not in and of itself bad, but it's Jesus who's going to save your soul. That's why he has come. That is what he's seeking to be appointed to, to accomplish. And the last thing I want any of you to do, even as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't want any of you to be walking through this life and you have no idea that you've just tripped and fallen over Jesus because you're just tripped into religion and not into a relationship with him that you could stand back and go, my eyes have seen salvation, and his name is Jesus. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Simple question, and I know, 
I know when I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes, you start focusing on all kinds of things. But the point is for you to focus so you're not distracted with your eyes. I have, a, I, have a, I have a simple but I think profound question. Have your eyes seen the salvation that only comes from the Lord? If, if you have a relationship with Christ and you know it, in just a minute we're going to sing, rejoice. That seems to be so much of what is going on in this story with the shepherds and with Mary and Joseph and with Simeon, they are rejoicing and praising and in awe and just worshiping God because the Christ is here. So with confidence, you can say, my eyes have seen the salvation of Jesus. Then sing, rejoice. But, but listen to me very closely. I don't care how old you are or how long you've been going to church. This is the crucial crux of the matter. Salvation is not about an experience or a goosebump or walking an aisle or filling out a card, attending church, working really hard, doing some really honorable good things. Salvation is about hearing and receiving and knowing Jesus. Have you received him? Because again, he lived the life that we couldn't. He had that perfect resume. And he takes on your life, your sin on the cross. We got all the holes in the world in our resume. As good as you think you are, and I know we can compare ourselves to a lot of people and you're like, I'm better than that guy. But you still got holes in your resume. And what you don't need to do is try to plug up those holes. You need a new resume. You need Jesus. He died that you might live. But we know that he can be your savior because he didn't stay dead. He has that kind of power, resurrection power. So my next question is not only have you seen the salvation that only comes from the Lord, but have you ever cried out, as it says in Luke, oh God, forgive me, be merciful to me, the sinner. Until you recognize your sin and your need for Jesus and his work, you've not received Jesus. I just, I just pray that if you're watching online or if you're in this room, and you've never received the Jesus that I'm talking about in Scripture, that right now the wait could be over because the consolation and the comforter is here. Cry out to Jesus to be your salvation. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that whether today, or months, or years from now, of people watching an old sermon online, someone will hear the good news of Jesus and what he accomplished with his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, that there would be one that would receive salvation. And for the rest of us who know Jesus as Lord, may we praise you because you're worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.